The night before Halloween, 1975, 15-year-old Martha Moxley left her home and went out with friends for mischief night. When Martha failed to return home, a search ensued that ended in the discovery of Martha's body on her own property. Despite police efforts to find Martha's murderer, her case went cold, with no arrests being made until 2000. That arrest ended in a murder conviction, but that conviction was reversed after extensive appeals, leaving the family and the state with no one to answer for Martha's death. I'm Marina. With me, I have my two best friends, Colby and Laura, and this is Grim. This may be a first for us. I don't know that we have covered a case where there was a conviction and then it was overturned and now it is unsolved, question mark? No, we definitely have not. This is new. Mm. And I always get excited when I hear 1975. I just, something about the 70s (laughs) and murders is just really gets me going. Does it for you? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Don't know why. I think, I think it's because it's either that or the 1800s. So, yes. you know, it's just, I like it when things were, when it's a crazy time and nobody can prove anything and I no DNA. Yeah. I just really no cell phones when they're not tracking your Google searches, yeah. like all these dumb oh, husbands murdering their wives. How hard is it to bury a body? <laughs> 115 pound body. Yeah. Oh, you gotta be gosh. more specific in your Google search. <laughs> yeah. All, all these men killing their wives. Just, mm-hmm. just don't divorce. Like I divorce. know it's expensive, but do you know what else is expensive? legal fees Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i'm just saying like (laughs) pick one yeah and they go to jail they do go to jail yeah so if you're listening learn (laughs) and maybe your spouse will stay alive uh so today we're talking about the murder of martha moxley uh and for today's case we are back in connecticut in 1975 there are no spirit knees or personal veils in this case so uh sorry if you're into that sort of thing this one's pretty normal you're saved because it's from the 70s so i'll pay attention okay (laughs) uh first i want to give a big shout out to our newest patreons thank you to sadie's sister wednesday (laughs) we love you sadie (laughs) sadie's sister or wednesday Wednesday? yeah we love you either way sorry but we love your sister too i guess yeah I like the chicken dance that went along with that. (laughs) I I knew. And uh, our girl, Laura. Woo, we love you, Laura. Not to be confused with the Laura sitting to the right of me, the other Laura. We love you. (laughs) Spelled differently. Yes. Yep. For this week's episode, I listened to some great podcasts to get a lay of the land, including Crime Junkie, True Crime All the Time Unsolved, and a 48 Hours episode. I also read various news articles, as well as a lot of the appellate documents that were filed in the case. Per usual, I want to start with some background on Martha Moxley, our victim in the case. Martha Elizabeth Moxley was born on August 16, 1960 in California to John and Dorothy Moxley. Her older brother John was two at the time. When Martha was around 14 years old, the Moxley family moved onto Walsh Lane in the Bellhaven area of Greenwich, Connecticut. Greenwich is only 30 miles from New York City, where John Moxley worked at an accounting firm while Dorothy stayed at home with the children. I'm sure most are aware that Greenwich is one of the wealthiest towns in the entire country, but I wanted to provide a little additional information on the Bellhaven area to really set the scene. 
Bellhaven is an upscale gated community within Greenwich. I didn't do a deep dive for information about real estate in the 70s. Sorry, Laura. <laughs> but just to give you an idea, in 2015 or around that time, the average home in Greenwich sold for $2.7 million, whereas the homes in the Bellhaven area sold for 4 to $6 million oh, on average. Okay. Wow. So Bellhaven is like the VIP section of Greenwich. Wow. We always say, because it's not that far to drive down and we've driven through there plenty of times and I, you know, ooh and awe at the mansions. And then I think to myself, but these are the ones I can see from like the regular yes. roads. So I can only imagine in the neighborhoods I don't even know to find and drive through that I'm probably not even allowed in because it's a gated community. Yeah. You can see the poor mansions. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> these are the rich mansions. I can mansions. see the $2 million yeah. ones, not the $4 million. Okay. Correct. <laughs> So Martha adapted well to her new environment in Greenwich. She went to the local high school where she was popular and well-liked. She was described as an incredibly well-rounded person. She was athletic, friendly, intelligent, and artistic. And I didn't see this in any articles, but if I had to guess, I'm going to go out on a limb here that her smile lit up a room. <laughs> mm -hmm. I knew you were going to say it. Oh no, poor Martha. On October 30th, 1975, 15-year-old Martha desperately wanted to go out with her friends for mischief night. Did you guys have this where you grew up? No. no. Okay. I was shaking my head and then I realized we're on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm interested. I don't know if this is a New England thing. It's not a Greenwich thing because a, a couple of the podcasts I listened to were like, oh, it's like a thing in their area. But we have it. We had it in our town where I grew up. And it's like you'd have to bring your pumpkins in at night because it was mischief night and kids would go around and smash the pumpkins. And it's the night before Halloween and... And kids go out and huh, cause I think, mischief. I think there, there was just too much room between houses where I grew up. But that would have been oh, so same. much work yeah. to go house to house. It was enough to do trick-or-treating. I grew up in a right-to-farm community. Uh, so there is much land between you and your neighbors. Exactly. So maybe that's what it is. Yeah. So mischief night isn't like the purge or anything. It's your standard, <laughs> your standard pranks and vandalism, like TPing houses, which if you're going to hit my house, do it with fluffy Charmin, please, so that I can reuse it. Uh, none of that one ply bullshit. Um, throwing eggs at houses. Also let me know so I can go out there and catch them because eggs are very expensive these days. I was going to say both of those are like really expensive yeah. activities, like since the pandemic, you know? Well, in Greenwich, you could afford it. Oh, true. Of course. <laughs> That's true. Maybe not where we're from. I don't know. I don't know. We had it in our, I don't know if it's a Connecticut thing, maybe. Maybe, I don't know. Gremlins, if you're listening, tell us if Mischief Night was a thing in, in your mm, area yeah. because it definitely was where I grew up. But mm. And they'd play like Ding Dong Ditch, like just meaningless, mm, okay. stupid yep. stuff, just yep. to like annoy people, like like low-level criminal activity, you know. <laughs> but no murders. No murders. No, okay. no purge activity, like no okay. breaking into houses. So Martha wanted to go out and celebrate with her friends that night, but she was grounded at the time. Martha begged her mother to let her go anyways, and she laid it on thick. Dorothy was the only one that she had to convince that night since her father was out of town on a business trip. And she did. Dorothy agreed to let Martha go out, but Martha knew that she should return by around 9.30 because it was a school night. Dorothy spent some time that evening painting in the master bedroom. She heard a commotion outside around 9.30 or 10. She looked out the window but didn't see anything. She cleaned up her painting supplies and took a shower. She went downstairs and was watching the 11 o'clock news, and Martha still wasn't home at that time. Dorothy started to watch a movie, but she fell asleep. And when she woke up at 1.30 or 2, Martha still wasn't home. Dorothy woke up Martha's brother, John, and asked him to go out to look for her. When he returned without her and no additional information, Dorothy was nervous and started calling around. And she was 15, right? 15. Hmm. This is also like a gated community yeah. that she was wandering around. So I don't know 
But I guess she was like always home by her curfew. Yeah. So this was very unusual for yeah. her. No, I definitely, I, I'm actually surprised it took that long to be nervous, but I was thinking, all right, she's 15. You know, as you said, it's a safe community mm-hmm. and it was also the seventies. So yeah. And yeah. I think, I think she fell asleep maybe around 11. Mm-hmm. So maybe she was thinking she would come home right around then. And then by the time she woke up at one she was like, mm, yeah, definitely something's wrong. So Dorothy called Martha's friends, but they both confirmed that Martha wasn't with them. Dorothy began calling the neighbors. Around 3 a.m., Dorothy called the Skakels, the family who lived diagonally across the street from them. Dorothy spoke to Thomas Skakel, who confirmed that Martha wasn't there and that he didn't know where she was. He said he left her at 9.30 and that she said she was going home to do homework at that time. At 3.45, Dorothy called the police while Martha's brother John went back out to drive around the neighborhood to look for his sister. Three officers arrived at the Moxley house and began to help in the search for Martha. This is clearly different from most of the other cases we've discussed in the past where the police don't take the missing persons report seriously or they wait 72 hours to ensure that as much evidence is missing as possible. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I would suspect that it's because it's Greenwich and the police have time on their hands in such a safe area and the family was very wealthy. So you know how that goes. Yep. Yep. Unfortunately. Mm -hmm. The police prepared a missing persons report and Dorothy continued to call around. Dorothy spoke to Martha's friend, Helen, who didn't know where Martha was at the moment, but that she'd seen her the night before. She said the last time she saw Martha, Martha was leaving the Skakel home. Dorothy walked over to the Skakel home and knocked on the door that was answered by Michael Skakel. Dorothy said he looked rough, like he was hungover. Michael said Martha wasn't there. The Skakels had a big camper in their driveway, and Dorothy asked if Martha may have gone in there and fell asleep. Michael didn't think so, but he let Dorothy check anyways. Unfortunately, the camper was empty. At this point, there was a neighborhood search, and everyone was out looking for Martha. Why did they think to check with the Skakel family? Like, were were one of the kids over there friends with Martha? Yeah, so okay. Martha Martha was friends with Tommy and Michael. Um, and I think because it's like a gated community, I think all those kids hung out yep, together. I that. And um, she had talked to Helen, who said that she last saw her at the Skakels. Okay. Between noon and one on Halloween, Martha's friend Sheila came running up to the Moxley home in absolute hysterics. Mm. She says, call 911. Something terrible has happened. She said, Martha has been attacked and she's not moving. (gasps) So Dorothy wants to run outside and Dorothy's friend basically says, you stay here. I'll go check it out. Good Good friend. Martha's body was face down under a tree on the Moxley property, (gasps) which was quite large. It's 2.4 acres, so it's not too unbelievable that she hadn't been found sooner with everyone out looking for her because they probably weren't even looking in that vicinity. Martha's head was covered in blood. There was a broken piece of a golf club shaft (gasps) sticking out of her neck, and her pants and underwear were pulled down around her ankles. One of the responding officers said that Martha's head was so badly beaten and bloody that her hair color was unidentifiable. Oh, my God. The police apparently did a bad job securing the crime scene after the discovery of Martha's body. At some points, her body was left completely alone, and a neighborhood dog was allowed to walk all around the area where (gasps) she was left. The police determined quickly that Martha had been beaten to death by a six-iron Tony Penna golf club. The head of the golf club was found about 200 feet away from her body, and the shaft was broken into jagged pieces. The grip from the golf club was missing and has never been recovered. Based upon the blood at the scene, Martha had been beaten near her driveway and then her body was dragged through the grass to its final resting place beneath the tree where she was found. Oh. 
Martha's was the first murder in Greenwich that had happened in 30 years. Wow. So the police did not have much experience in this arena, but they obviously knew to start gathering information about when Martha was last seen and who she was last with. Police learned that Martha had been at the Skakel home the night before. Mm -hmm. This is a good spot to stop and give you some more information on the Skakel family. Yes, please. The family consisted of seven children, six boys, and one girl, which is, it's too many kids. It's a lot of kids. (laughs) It's too many kids. Which I guess if you have a nanny, it's fine, but like, it's too many kids. (laughs) I think that's even too much for that. Yeah. The two key players here are Tommy, who was 17 at the time, and Michael, who was 15. And they were living at home with their siblings and their father, Rushton Skakel, as well as their 24-year-old live-in tutor, Kenneth Littleton, who had started work for the family on that same day. That couldn't have sounded bougier if you tried. Yeah, I don't think Rushton. Rushton Skakel. And Kenneth. Kenneth Littleton is the tutor. Still. The live-in tutor. (laughs) The live-in tutor. You went real Greenwich (laughs) with this one. Yeah. 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 Their mother, Anne, had passed away from cancer two years earlier. Mm. And the Skakel family was well off and well connected. Rushton Skakel was the brother of Ethel Kennedy, who was the widow of Robert F. Kennedy. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. Who was assassinated in 1968 while he was running for president. And for those who don't know, Robert F. Kennedy was the brother of John F. Kennedy. What? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's been my dream to be a Kennedy my whole life. But the Kennedy curse. You I don't, know. You but, don't want that. But listen, Colby Kennedy. How Ooh. good does that sound? It's crisp. If I ever have a daughter, her name's Kennedy. It's oh, Done. that's nice. That's nice. So I can say, Kenny, like on South Park, when Cartman's <laughs> always talking to Kenny. We digress. <laughs> Sorry, we do. <laughs> so the Skakels were relatives of the famous Kennedys, which kind of made them a big deal to some people. And Rushton's father had founded the Great Lakes Carbon Corporation, which became one of the largest privately held corporations in the United States. The company made George a multimillionaire, and Rushton followed suit when he took over for his father. Rushton had mostly a hands-off approach when it came to his kids, so as you would expect, the kids were pretty wild. The Skakels was the place to hang out because there was very little supervision and lots of partying. Tommy and Michael were fiercely competitive and would sometimes get violent. None of the siblings got along well, and they all had strained relationships with each other and with their father. Drugs and alcohol were easily accessible to the kids in their father's absence, and Michael Skakel was a heavy drinker by the age of 13. Oof. Wow. Yeah, it's serious. Michael was drunk on the night that Martha was murdered, free to do as he pleased while Rushton was off on a hunting trip. When Rushton heard what had happened to Martha, he rushed back to Greenwich. On October 31st, Rushton allowed the police to enter his home. While inside, the police noticed a set of Tony Penna golf clubs that had belonged to Rushton's widow, Ann Skakel. Mm. Oh, and let me guess, it was missing the six iron. Yes, if you could believe it. Yeah, oh, I wonder good why. Memory. I was stuck on you saying that Rushton rushed back. <laughs> And then it was too late to make the joke, but I have chosen to make it anyway. (laughs) We'll just savor this moment. Thank you. Thank you. I like it. Police determined quickly that the murder weapon had come from the Skakel's home, but police didn't know who had been wielding it at the time of Martha's death, so they needed more information. Martha's autopsy did not reveal much other than the brutality of the crime. Her autopsy was delayed because there was no one in Greenwich who was available to perform it. In fact, it was a funeral director that had moved her body from the crime scene. The police had to call in the state medical examiner, 
So her autopsy occurred on November 1st, which made it harder to pinpoint her time of death. Due to the delay, the medical examiner could only narrow down the time of death as sometime after 9.30 on October 30th to 5.30 a.m. on October 31st. That's an eight hour yeah. window of time, which makes the police's job harder because they don't know exactly what timing they're looking for. Right. And when did um, the Moxley family go out and start looking for her? Was it after 930? Because she should have been home by 930, yeah. right? I think it was like 330 in the morning, right? Well, I think it was, he went out the first time, I think around like 130 one, or yeah. 2 a.m. Do you think, because I don't know, I'm sure there's multiple exits from a house like this. But do you think the blood that was in the driveway would have been visible to somebody oh. walking through the driveway? Or That's a good question. Oh, that's that is a good question. I don't know. See, I think, I think it probably wasn't as visible because it was so dark out. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it might've been like next to the driveway in the grass. Okay. So, so not I like think, in the center of the driveway. Yeah. And I think that they weren't even looking in that area. I think they were out in Further the town, away from yeah, house. looking because it took until the next day to even discover her body yep. on the property. But again, 2.4 acres is big ish. Enough that not if you're us. not, yeah, <laughs> enough that we love to talk about acreage and insurance companies on this podcast. Um, it's big enough if you're not thinking to look in that area that you wouldn't just glance at something and see it in detail. Right. And it was really dark. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just meant it as growing up on 24 yeah. acres, two acres is nothing. There's a yeah. lot of places where I grew up to hide a body, like a lot. <laughs> There's also a pond. I'm just saying. <laughs> Did you drain it? No, it has not been drained. Oh. <laughs> Although there was no physical evidence to determine her time of death, the police concluded that Martha likely died closer to 10 p.m. on the 30th than early the next morning, based upon the information that they gathered from other witnesses, who said they heard dogs barking around that time. Mm. Dorothy had said that she had heard a commotion around 9.30 or 10. That's when she looked out the window, oh, but she didn't right. see anything. And Helen, Martha's friend and neighbor, had said her dog was going unusually berserk around that time. Helen said her dog started barking incessantly in the direction of the Moxley driveway around 9.45 that oh. night. She said it went on long enough that she put down a phone call that she was on to call the dog inside. The dog, who usually came when she called, continued to bark in the direction of the Moxley home and would not come inside. So with this additional information, they concluded that that was likely the time that she right. died. That poor dog was like, listen to me. Yeah. <laughs> Go oh. look. He's like, I am alerting people. People, look. Nobody did. They were like, please come inside and stop barking. They're like, Thank you. Shut, shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> the autopsy revealed that Martha had been struck eight to nine times in the head with the golf club, which was then stabbed into her neck. Oh. There was no evidence of sexual assault, despite the positioning of her pants, although Dr. Henry Lee opined that the red marks left on the tops of Martha's inner thighs were consistent with bloody hands trying to push her legs apart. Ugh. So to me, that I, I'm thinking it's like sexually motivated. Yeah, like right, maybe yeah. she wasn't sexually assaulted, right. but you know, maybe the dog scared him away while right, they were yeah. attempting it. Ugh. So the police start looking at who could have had access to the golf clubs and who could have had motive, and they turn their focus to the Skakels. However, I will point out that Rushton told the police that the kids would play with the clubs and leave them out on the property from time to time. So the Skakels' involvement is certainly not a foregone conclusion at this point. A few weeks after Martha's death, Rushton brought the boys to the police station to give statements. Tommy told the police that he was in for the night by 930 
Tommy said that he was watching a movie with the tutor, Ken, and then he went to work on a paper about Abraham Lincoln for school. Michael also had an alibi. He said that he left his house around 9.30 with his cousin Jimmy and went to Jimmy's house where he smoked weed and watched the debut of Monty Python's Flying Circus. Oh, Monty Python. Yeah. Which I only know of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I think um, the Flying Circus is more like the, I think like the sketch show and the the Holy Grail, I'm probably wrong and someone's going to tell me this, but I feel like that came from a sketch. Okay. Uh, something that right. came from a sketch yeah. and then they made it into a full movie. Okay. Thank you. I learned. <laughs> Michael said he didn't return home until 11 p.m. and that he went to bed shortly thereafter. And then he said he'd never left the house again that night. The police looked into the kids' alibis. They gathered the following information about that evening. The night before, Martha had left the house with her friend Helen and some other neighborhood kids. When they initially left, all of the Skakel children were out having dinner at the Bellhaven Club with Ken Littleton, the tutor. Their cousin, James Terrian, a.k.a. Jimmy, and Julie Skakel's friend, Andrea Shakespeare. The group returned home around 9 p.m., at which point they were joined at the Skakel home by Martha and her friends. Michael, Helen, and their friend Jeffrey went to the Skakel family car to listen to music. They were then joined by Tommy Skakel. At about 9.25, Michael's brothers, Rushton Jr., John, <laughs> and their cousin Jimmy, said they needed the car to go to Jimmy's house to watch Monty Python. Rushton, John, Michael, and Jimmy left in the car. Tommy, Martha, Helen, and Jeffrey stayed behind. Is this a logic question? <laughs> <laughs> Because I don't think I'm going to answer it right. Who's wearing the purple shoes? <laughs> <laughs> Tommy and Martha were horse playing in a flirtatious manner in the driveway, which made Helen uncomfortable. So she left with Jeffrey. So now the only people left in the driveway are Tommy and Martha. Okay. And this is on the night of the 30th. This is yes. mischief night. Yes. And that was the last time that anyone saw Martha. So Michael's alibi checked out. There was a bit of a snag with Tommy's alibi. The police talked to all of Tommy's teachers, and none of them knew about any assignments involving Abraham Lincoln. Uh-oh. The police looked to Martha's diary for additional insight into her relationship with Tommy and Michael. Martha knew that Tommy had a crush on her, and she wrote that he kept trying to get to first and second base <gasps> with her. Oh, no. A month before she died, she wrote, Michael was so totally out of it that he was being a real asshole in his actions and words. He kept telling me that I was leading Tommy on when I don't like him, except as a friend. And I said, well, how about you and Jackie? You keep telling me that you don't like her and you're all over her. Michael jumps to conclusions. I can't be friends with Tommy. Just because I talk to him, it doesn't mean I like him. Wow. So to recap, the murder weapon comes from the Skakel home. Tommy's alibi is sketchy. And he possibly has a motive for murder. Martha hmm. turning down his advances. Yep. Not only that, the manner in which Martha was murdered was described as, quote, overkill, indicating that the killer likely knew the victim. Yeah, I would describe what you drew the picture or painted the picture of as overkill. Like very, like almost a passion, mm -hmm. like yeah. very violent. There's like emo emotion involved in that for sure. And so Tommy was the one that had a crush on Martha, but was Martha friends with Michael? As well. As well. Yes. Okay. They all, they all hung out. But Tommy was never arrested. The police asked for an arrest warrant from the state's attorney, but they said no. They didn't have enough evidence. And maybe no other evidence existed, or maybe it did. But other than the cursory search in which the golf clubs were found, police never got a warrant to do a thorough search of the Skakel home. And they didn't bring him in for, I know he went down and did a statement, but he, they didn't bring him in for questioning? Not that I'm aware of. Wow. 
And this is the part where they accuse the police of being more concerned about money, power, and political clout than anything else. A lot of the police officers moonlit as security at the Skakel residence. And people pointed out that it was possible that the police were hesitant to really dig into the Skakel family as having any involvement in the crime. Yep. Despite criticism, the police definitely did put work into the case. By December 1975, the police had interviewed over 250 people, but they didn't get anywhere. In January 76, at the advice of his lawyer, Rushton cut off police access to his family. It wasn't until the summer of 1976 that the police questioned Ken Littleton, the family tutor. Oh, I assumed that they did that when they were checking the alibi. No. Oh, geez. No, I'm not sure how he hadn't been questioned prior, but... Ken was given two polygraph tests over the course of that investigation, and he failed both of them. But the police had no physical evidence, and Ken had no motive. With so little to go on, Martha's case went cold. And I wonder what it was that he failed, because it it doesn't necessarily mean that he like unless the question was did you kill Martha, <laughs> right? It doesn't right. mean that he that he's guilty, just that maybe he knows something, right? And it couldn't have been substantial enough, right? Because it didn't lead to anything. Yeah. The Skakels went on with their lives, but Martha's murder loomed over them like a dark cloud. Michael Skakel continued to struggle with substance abuse issues. In 1978, he was arrested for driving under the influence after he led police on a high-speed car chase while he was drunk. Rather than face jail time, his family worked out a deal where he was sent to a lawn school in Poland, Maine instead. The lawn school cost about $42,000 a year. In the 70s? Mm -hmm. Sounds like it would be a luxury getaway, right? Yeah. Yeah. No. Oh, no. Oh, no. No. Based on what I've learned about the school... I think Michael may have been better off in prison. Oh, really? Mm. I'm going to give a quick history and background information about the school because it's relevant to some of the claims in the case later on. Uh, and it may even be worth doing a bonus episode on at some point. The it's, school itself? Mm-hmm. Ooh, yeah. juicy. It's just not at all what I expected, the direction I expected when right. you said you had to pay for it and that it seemed like he was going to get off easy, but it, I guess I'll just let you talk. I want to hear <laughs> You want to let me tell you about it? No. no. Oh, one more thing. I'm just kidding. (laughs) The school was designed to be a last resort for kids with behavioral and psychological problems. One former student described it as a, and I quote, sadistic, brutal, violent, soul-eating hellhole. Wow. Which that really paints a word picture. Uh Uh-huh. Some of the tactics for reform that were employed, including screaming at the students in their face by both staff and classmates, humiliation tactics, and fist fighting between the students in what they called the ring. <laughs> oh, it's just oh fight gosh. club at this yeah. school. I would say that sounds more terrifying than Samara's seven days, but we all know how I feel about that. <laughs> it may come as a shock to you that the school is now closed, but it didn't close until April 2011. <gasps> wow. Mm-hmm. Michael was at the Elan School from 1978 to 1980. One of Michael's classmates said that one of Michael's, quote, treatments at the school consisted of him being literally thrown into the ring where he was forced to fight other students until he confessed to being involved in Martha's murder, which is interesting because that's not even why he was at the school. He was at the school for a DUI. Another treatment, which again, I use that term very loosely, involved humiliation tactics. In group therapy, he was forced to wear a sign around his neck that said, I'm an arrogant, rich brat. Confront me on why I killed my friend Martha. 
Seems like a good, healthy environment for rehabilitation. <laughs> I would say so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't imagine why it closed. Michael got out of the Elan school in 1980 and continued to struggle, probably in part thanks to his treatment at the school, which would continue to haunt him in more ways than one later in life. But Michael did eventually recover from his substance abuse and made a life for himself. He was athletic and spent some time working on a career as a speed skier. He married a professional golfer in 1991, and him and his wife lived in Massachusetts together with their son, and Michael worked in real estate with his family. He graduated from college in 1993 with a degree from Curry College in Massachusetts, which had programs for dyslexic students like Michael, who went undiagnosed until he was 26 years old. Oof, that's tough. Yeah. So despite his privilege, Michael had a tough go at it as a teenager. He lost his mom, had an absent alcoholic father, had substance abuse issues himself, had undiagnosed dyslexia, went to Elan school. I mean, that's tough. It sounds tough. While all this was going on in Michael's life... In 1982, the Greenwich Time and the Stanford Advocate hired reporter Leonard Levitt to look into Martha's murder. Leonard reviewed hundreds of pages of police records and conducted more than 100 interviews. Levitt's article, which was written with the help of another reporter, Kevin Donovan, was not published until 1991, and it highlighted errors made by the Greenwich police. Once it was published, it reignited interest in Martha's case, as did coverage of the William Kennedy Smith rape trial that led to a rumor that William Kennedy was at the Skakel house the night that Martha was murdered. That was not true. People just grasp for anything. They just, it's like the drama of it. The Connecticut state's attorney decided to reopen Martha's case and the Greenwich police dove back into their investigation. Rather than start off with Tommy Skakel, who was really the focus of the investigation back when the case initially went cold, the police had their focus on the tutor, Ken Littleton. And the police discovered that Ken's life had taken a turn after Martha's death. After the police had questioned Ken the first time, he lost his job at a school in New Canaan, which caused him to spiral. He began to drink more frequently, stopped teaching, and couldn't keep even a part-time job. He picked up some criminal charges, spent time in a psychiatric hospital, and attempted suicide. With the case reopened, the police set up a sting with Ken's ex-wife, hoping that Ken would confess to the murder while talking with her. He didn't confess. He did agree to talk to the police without a lawyer. Over the course of four days of interrogation, the police gave Ken two more polygraph tests, which he also failed. Mm. It makes me a little more suspicious since things went really badly for him after after she died. So. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But other than the failed polygraphs, again, the police had nothing on him. No motive, no DNA, hmm. no other physical evidence. And the media was still focused on the Skakel family. At this point, police couldn't clear Ken as a suspect, but they didn't have enough to charge him either. In 1992, Rushton Skakel decided he was tired of the whole charade and wanted to clear his family's name once and for all. He hired the prestigious private investigation firm called Sutton Associates to investigate Martha's murder. The firm spent more than a million dollars and three years reinvestigating the case by reviewing documents and interviewing witnesses. The investigation resulted in what is called the Sutton Report. And rather than exonerate Michael and Tommy, the investigation made them look worse. (laughs) During that investigation, Tommy and Michael both changed their stories about their activities the night that Martha was murdered. So originally, Tommy told the police that he was with Martha and then went inside by 930 to watch the movie with Ken. Then he worked on that Abraham Lincoln paper. Well, Tommy told the PIs that he'd lied about the paper. He said he was actually with Martha until almost 10 o'clock. 
and that the two had engaged in an intimate encounter. He said that they engaged in mutual masturbation and that Tommy had been the one that unbuttoned Martha's jeans and pulled them down. Mm. Uh, And then what? Yeah. So this makes me question Tommy's involvement because he couldn't have left her like that. That's what I mean. Like, what? Uh, Bye. That was nice. That was fun. (laughs) Right. So he couldn't have left her like that, but had somebody else walked up to them while they were doing that, while her pants were down, he would have said that. Yeah. Right. So it's super sketchy. It's super sketchy to me. Does he, was it public knowledge that her pants were down when she was found? I think so. Huh. I don't understand. I don't know. No. (laughs) What a weird thing to admit to. Agreed. Later though. Yeah. Like, like why? Like I didn't kill her, but I did pull her pants down. It's like, uh, what happened then? Like, why did they remain down before the yeah. act of killing if you didn't kill her? I don't know. And I don't even know if he was saying that, like, she never pulled her pants back up. But I don't know for her pants to be down while he's with her, and that's how she's found later right, on. That's exactly what I mean. That's why I was wondering super. if it was known. Because if it wasn't, maybe he would unknowingly mm. have made himself look more suspicious. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's super sketchy. Mm. Did any of the Skakel kids say that Martha was drinking that night at all? No, okay. not that I'm aware. I just figured I'd ask because it sounded like they had access to like dad's liquor cabinet in right. the house. Yeah. She may have been drinking, but there was no information in what I read about it. Michael, too, left out some interesting information when he first spoke to the police. Michael told the PIs that he was at his cousin's, but he did leave the house again that night about midnight after he had gotten home. He had a big crush on Martha. He decided to go over to her house that night and shoot his shot. He was trying to get her attention at her window by throwing rocks, but she wasn't responding. So he climbed the tree near her house and then decided to masturbate. What? Okay, hang on a second. I thought that in her diary, she had said that Michael basically talked to her about how Tommy had a crush on her. Yeah, Michael had a crush on her too. Oh, Okay, I'm starting to get an opinion in my head. Okay. Me too. Mm -hmm. Now, this tree that he climbed to masturbate happens to be the tree under which Martha's body was found. I was going to ask that. Which then, I'm further uh, surprised that they didn't find her because that implies it was relatively close to the house and not an acre and a half away. Yeah, because he could see into the window, Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Is it? I (laughs) don't... It is, but I think the house is probably pretty big in the oh, tree. Sure. If it's dark, but and the you don't walk on. around the house to look for your missing kid. Of course you do. So very, it's it's all strange. Hmm. Maybe she Good wasn't point. there. That's yet. why I'm confused. Yeah, I think she was there because there still could have been a commotion, but maybe she wasn't back there yet. But I'm pretty sure, based on the evidence, she was bludgeoned at her driveway right. and then dragged to the trees. But during how much time? Maybe the body was out there and then somebody got nervous and was like, ooh, that would be dumb to leave a body out front. You know? I don't know. Let me just put her under the tree, our special place where we shared that moment earlier. Where <laughs> I jerked it to her in her yeah. room, except she wasn't actually there. No, she wasn't in her room. She was no. dead under the Which tree. Which actually makes it less suspicious for him. I don't... This is such a weird it's case. so strange. <laughs> Can't figure it out. hmm So, as I was saying, Michael masturbated in the tree, and then he climbed out and went home, as one the does. End. As one sure. does. Mm-hmm. What, are you going to hang around longer? Yeah. <laughs> 
So Rushton thought that this PI report would uh, help his sons, but instead um, it did not. So he did nothing with the report and just swept it under the rug, <laughs> which probably the worst million dollars he ever spent. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about a bad investment. Yep. And the case slowly starts to fizzle out again. Now, when the PIs were investigating the case, this caught the attention of author Dominic Dunn, who decided that he wanted to write a book on the matter. Dominic got permission from Dorothy Moxley, and he wrote a book inspired by Martha's murder with the same cast of characters bearing different names. The book was called A Season in Purgatory, and it was released in 1993, and again, interest in Martha's murder picked back up. Dominic says that while he's on a book tour in Colorado that same year, a forensic pathologist who used to work with the Greenwich police comes up to him, gives him a copy of Martha's autopsy photos, and tells him that everyone has this all wrong. Tommy didn't kill Martha, but the person doesn't say who they think did. In the fall of 1995, another source approached Dominic and gave him a copy of the Sutton Report, which included Tommy and Michael's changed stories. Dominic gave a copy of the Sutton Report to Mark Furman, who is the former LAPD detective who was involved in the O.J. Simpson case. Oh. Furman uses the report and writes his own book, claiming to have solved Martha's murder. In 98, the book is published. It's called Murder in Greenwich, Who Killed Martha Moxley? And names Michael Skakel as Martha's killer. That feels like a bad idea. (laughs) The same year, the state announced that it was convening a one-judge grand jury to investigate and review the evidence of Martha's murder. One of the witnesses was Ken Littleton, (laughs) who, get this, would not testify before the judge unless he was granted immunity. That's suspect. What did you do, Ken? Now, Ken's testimony, buckle up, all right? He went to dinner with the Skakel family. He watched a movie from 9 to 11. Tommy joined him around 10. And Ken never met or saw Martha and didn't overhear any of the Skakel boys say anything about her murder. I mean, this is really juicy information worthy of an immunity deal. I see why he needed that immunity. I do not get that. Ken, Ken seems like his life went down pretty quickly, like downhill after this incident happened to Martha or incident with Martha. The only thing I can think of is just, are you so nervous that they don't know who it is that they're just going to try to find a way to pin it on you and you just want to... Yeah, that you're going to be... You just want to be positive that that can't happen. Because honestly, yeah. it's not a bad idea. Because you're a non-family no. member that was in the house right, that right. night. Exactly. You're going to be the Skakel yeah. Kennedy scapegoat. The Skakel mm-hmm. scapegoat. I can't say that. Skakel scapegoat. It's Sca- really Skakel scapegoat. That is difficult. It makes me want to say scapegoat. <laughs> That's not right. Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> in July 1999, Ken was admitted to the hospital for self-inflicted stab wounds. So this was around that time as well. I don't think that Ken murdered Martha, but I feel like he might know something. Yeah, I felt at first like maybe he was failing the polygraph test because he helped one of the boys with something or was their alibi when they really weren't there or something like that. But, hmm, the self-inflicted stab wounds are interesting. I just, I think he's very conflicted. Um, I think he has spiraled out of control. I think he's... God, you got to be lying about somebody to fail yeah. that many polygraph tests, unless you're yeah. that nervous of a human being, I guess. I don't know. 
but to want immunity too but that is a good point about the scapegoat mm-hmm. because these are powerful maybe it's just that maybe yeah. it's just that he was too close to it he thought that they were responsible for it in some way and he was mm-hmm. just so nervous i could that see that someone was gonna pin it on him that even when yeah. he was telling the truth it looked like he was lying well because we don't know why it, uh, his life was in disarray after this who knows like maybe they threatened him or maybe right. he immediately felt like oh shit, like if they're looking for somebody to blame, the clubs clearly came from this house. Right. What am I going to do? Yeah. I mean, or even maybe just losing his job was enough to ruin his life. Couldn't find... Might have been hard to find work in a town where I know Greenwich isn't exactly small, but news travels fast and working for a powerful family, they could make it really hard for you to get another job. Right. And he lost his job in New Canaan, but I think that's also a very... Mm -hmm. rich area of connecticut yep yeah the most damaging evidence presented to the grand jury came from students at the alon school one of michael's former classmates gregory coleman testified that michael admitted to him that he had murdered martha and that he was going to get away with it because he's a kennedy Mm, was this after he was beaten uh and tortured or because like what is that i that would mean nothing right testimony or whatever and that was that was his defense attorney's point yeah yeah, that you can't really consider that a, a good confession. But Gregory later admitted that he was high on heroin when he testified before the grand jury. It didn't seem to impact the damage done. Unfortunately, Gregory was later found dead from a drug overdose in August 2001. It's mm. too bad. The grand jury lasted for a year and a half and included the testimony of 53 witnesses. It ended in December 1999 and resulted in a warrant for the arrest of Michael Skakel in connection with Martha's murder. Michael surrendered to police and was officially charged with Martha's death. However, because Michael was only 15 at the time of the murder, he was charged in the juvenile court. But the juvenile court ordered that Michael be tried as an adult and had his case transferred. During Michael's arraignment, he told Dorothy Moxley, you've got the wrong guy. Michael's criminal trial began in May 2002, and the state's ability to get a conviction was less than certain. Michael had hired a prominent criminal attorney, Mickey Sherman, and the evidence against Michael was all circumstantial. The state's theory of the case was that Michael murdered Martha in a jealous rage after he saw Martha with Tommy that night. I had that theory. Was that your theory? That's not what I think happened. I can see how they came to that theory, though. Although they had no physical evidence, the state called 12 witnesses who testified that Michael had told them that he was responsible for Martha's murder. Gregory Coleman, the one who had testified before the grand jury and died from an overdose, was unavailable to testify, so his testimony was read to the jury. Another Elan student, John Higgins, was called, and he testified that Michael had talked about a murder he may have been somehow involved in, and that he went from not knowing what happened to saying that he must have done it. Another Elan student, Charles Segan, said that in group therapy, on some occasions when Michael was confronted about Martha's murder, he was annoyed, while on other occasions he would cry and say he wasn't sure if he did it. I'm sensing a theme here. They happen to all be from the school. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's where I'm at, where they literally made him say he did it. Right, under duress. As part of treatment. Mm Mm-hmm. Michael apparently admitted that he was blind drunk and stumbling the night that Martha died and told another student, Dorothy Rogers, that he was drinking and could not recall if he was involved in the murder. Another student, Andrew Pugh, was assured by Michael that he didn't kill Martha, but was told by Michael that he had climbed the tree and masturbated in it when, where Martha's body was found. 
The defense sought to elicit testimony from the students to support the argument that any confessions could not be considered conclusive evidence considering the abuse and coercion used to elicit the statements. Yeah. Ken Littleton was also called and gave his earth-shattering testimony again as well. (laughs) (laughs) The state also called Larry Ziccarelli. Larry had been employed by the Skakel family as a driver and a handyman. According to Larry, in 1977, two years after Martha's murder, he was driving Michael to an appointment in New York City. Michael had gotten into a fight with his father and was upset. Michael told Larry that he had done something very bad and that he had to kill himself or get out of the country. On another occasion, Larry was driving Michael and they were stopped on the Triborough Bridge. Michael opened the door and ran to the side of the bridge. Larry ran after him and forced him back in the car. Oh my gosh. As Larry was returning to the driver's side, Michael took off again. When Larry and Michael got home, Larry asked him why he was trying to do what he was doing. And Michael said, if you knew what I had done, you would never talk to me again. So he's a guilty conscience at Mm. this point. Yep. And Mm. Larry quit shortly thereafter Mm. to get away from the family. Yeah. The state spent time pointing out a number of inconsistencies in Michael's statements over the years, and they challenged his alibi, questioning whether Michael had actually been at his cousin's house or whether it was part of a family cover-up. The state made sure to point out that Michael was related to all of the alibi witnesses. And they also called a witness, Andrea Shakespeare, who was a close friend of Michael's sister, Julie. And she said that Michael didn't get into the car to go to his cousin's house that night. Hmm. She was the only witness to say that he didn't get into the car. And in 1991, when she had been interviewed by the police, she said she didn't know who left in the car because she was in the kitchen with Julie the whole time. Hmm. But at trial, she was now certain that he didn't get in the car. What a mess. Yeah. Just in case Michael's alibi did check out, the state also presented evidence from the state chief medical examiner that Martha could have died between 9.30 and 10, but that it was also possible that she died any time before 1 a.m., trying to establish that Michael still could be the killer even if his alibi was credited. Michael didn't testify, but prosecutors were able to produce and introduce a tape recording of Michael talking to a ghostwriter about a possible book. Which I think we had this discussion in the last case where it's like, if your life is going to be ruined, you might as well make some money off of it. Yeah. Yeah. Michael explained to the ghostwriter how he was feeling bold that night, went over to Martha's house and masturbated in the tree. He said he went home and when Dorothy asked him if he'd seen Martha the next day, he thought, oh my God, did they see me last night? Oh. He said he remembered just having a feeling of panic. I, I fully believe all of this so far. I do too. I still, I don't know if he killed her. Mm-mm. What he had done that could have been so terrible is that he, he could have been in the tree masturbating literally while her body was underneath him. Yeah. Like he might not have known that at first. Right. I, oh, I don't know yeah. if he saw her when he got down from the tree or, cause you'd feel pretty bad about yourself. Even if she wasn't right there to know that she had died and he was yeah. doing that, I think would make you feel pretty awful. It also could be completely unrelated. True. I'm thinking of a privileged kid with a drinking problem. His dad could have bought him out of some other situation that nobody even heard about. A hit and run or... He could have gotten a girl pregnant secretly. Like like something and like it just when you put it together with the rest of this evidence, it makes him look guilty, but it could be completely unrelated. Mm. That was my thought anyways. Mm. 
Michael's defense strategy was to focus on reasonable doubt, which, I mean, that's a good defense yeah. strategy. <laughs> the Greenwich police chief testified that he had wanted to arrest Tommy Skakel back in 76, but that he couldn't get the arrest warrant. The defense also called the medical examiner that had helped the Greenwich police chief back when the murder occurred, who confirmed that he thought death occurred closer to 10 based upon the evidence and the barking dogs heard by the neighbors. So mm -hmm. Michael really was relying on his alibi to try to save the day here. The trial ended after three weeks. The jury deliberated for four days, and on June 7, 2002, Michael was convicted of Martha's murder and was later sentenced to 20 years to life. I'm really, I know there's more in your packet there, but I am really surprised that they convicted him based on that mm -hmm. evidence because I think, I, and again, I didn't sit through all the court proceedings, but it sure seems like you could have argued reasonable doubt. Absolutely. And that's why... Again, thank you for saying that. You don't know how the evidence went in. You don't know how these right. witnesses testified. But I think it's probably all of these quote-unquote confessions from the Elan school mm. with the shade that was thrown on his alibi that was enough for them to push it over the edge. But I don't think that it should have been, possibly. No. There weren't any fingerprints on the golf club or anything? Nope. There was no... no DNA, no physical mm. evidence, no fingerprints, nothing. And the handle of the golf club where there probably would have been fingerprints was never recovered. Oh, I okay. I was thinking it was like the, the head of the club was what wasn't recovered because the handle was, it wasn't the handle. It was like the shaft that was stuck in her neck. Yes, the okay, shaft okay. was stuck in her neck The because the actual like head of the iron flew off and was 200 feet away from wow. the body. Wow. Yeah. And the handle, like the grip was never recovered. Michael appealed his conviction, and his case went before the Connecticut Supreme Court. Michael hired new counsel for his appeals. And who was his appellate lawyer, you may ask? Hubie Santos. It sure was. Yes! <laughs> Among others, including Hope Seeley, who is now an appellate court judge in Connecticut. I nerded out a little bit on some of these issues. Uh, so what makes sense to me may make absolutely no sense to you. So feel free to ask questions or take a nap. Either one. <laughs> On appeal, Michael raised seven issues, including that his case was improperly transferred from the juvenile court to the regular criminal court, that the charges against him were barred by the five-year statute of limitations in effect in 1975, that the state withheld exculpatory evidence, that Gregory Coleman's testimony coming in at trial after his death violated Michael's Sixth Amendment right to confrontation, and that his federal and state constitutional rights were violated when the state was allowed to enter involuntary statements he made at the Elan School after being subjected to mental and psychological torture, among other claims. I think I actually followed all of those. I think I got Did it. Did you? Okay. Yeah. Addressing the claim concerning the transfer from juvenile court, a statute allowed the juvenile court to transfer a murder case to the criminal docket as long as the juvenile was at least 14 years of age. Pursuant to the statute, the transfer was not permitted unless an investigation is completed and there's reasonable cause to believe that the child committed the crime charged. There's no available institution for the care and treatment of the child and the superior court is a better setting to dispose of the case. The Supreme Court agreed that the investigation pursuant to the statute was insufficient, but this transfer was still proper because the state could not legally place him in a custodial or non-custodial setting because he was well over the age of 18 by the time that he was charged. Right. Regarding the statute of limitations, Michael was correct that his charge was governed by a five-year statute of limitations in 1975. 
However, the Supreme Court held that the 1976 amendment, which removed the five-year statute of limitations, would apply retroactively to crimes in which the statute of limitations had not yet run. Mm. Oh, so because five years hadn't gone by, it was fair game. Yes. Mm. Yep. So the new statute of limitations applied fair game. He lost that argument. Regarding the admission of the coerced confessions at the Elan School, Michael never raised this claim at trial, so he sought review under what's called State versus Golding, which governs the review of unpreserved constitutional errors. One of the requirements is that the record is adequate for review, and because Michael never raised the issue at trial, there was insufficient evidence to determine how the atmosphere at the school may have affected the voluntariness of his statements. That's too bad because I really feel like none of that should have been admissible exactly. because it definitely was not of his own free will. He was sharing that information based right. on what you told us about how the school operated. Mm-hmm. Right. But the, the court's point is that, so for Gregory Coleman's statement, mm-hmm. if he was in the ring when he made that statement to Gregory, that's different than if they're laying in bed in their co-dorms right. and he's just telling him to, Very different. You know, for nighttime Pillow talk. (laughs) Yes. Yep. My brain lost all the words. Yes. Pillow talk. So um, they wouldn't review the issue. So the Supreme Court rejected all of Michael's claims and they affirmed his conviction. Come on. Hubie can do better than this. In 2005, Michael sought to get a new trial based upon new evidence. A man named Gitano, a.k.a. Tony Bryant, a classmate of Michael's and a cousin of Kobe Bryant said that there were two men in Greenwich the night Martha was murdered who were likely responsible for her death. Tony said he was hanging out that night with two men, Adolf, a.k.a. Al Hasbrook. It was Adolf. I don't need to hear anymore. (laughs) And Burton Tinsley in Belhaven. Al and Burton were from New York, but they had met Martha on previous trips to Greenwich, including at a street fair and at a school dance. Tony said that Al and Burton came across the golf club in the Skagel's yard and said they were going to attack a girl, quote, caveman style. Ooh. Tony said he didn't want anything to do with it, so he left, but the men later told Tony that they had achieved their fantasy. Yikes. The judge denied Michael's request for a new trial, finding Tony's testimony was not credible. One of the things that he implied was that it was very unlikely that three African-American males would have gone unnoticed in this neighborhood that night. That may be true. I don't know. Yeah. I think in an affluent, probably very, very white neighborhood in the 70s in Greenwich, Connecticut, I think that they would have stuck out like a sore thumb and for all of the wrong reasons, people would have been watching them. Yes, Mm -hmm. 100%. Michael also argued that there was new evidence to impeach Gregory Coleman's testimony. He said that there were three other men present when Michael made his statement. The trial court rejected this claim because the defendant could have located and called those three witnesses at trial. And the judge found that the impeachment value of their testimony would not be enough to lead to an acquittal on retrial. So in order to get a new trial, the new evidence has to actually be new evidence that you were incapable of discovering prior to your trial. And that was not the case here. Not just, I wish I had done that better. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Can't get a second bite at the apple. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Michael appealed that decision to the Supreme Court as well. 
The Supreme Court agreed that Tony's statements were not credible because there was no corroborating evidence. It also agreed that the evidence of the three witnesses to contradict Gregory's testimony was available prior to the trial and was insufficient to convince the court that the testimony would lead to a different result at trial. Mm -hmm. So he lost it again at the Supreme Court. In 2010, Michael filed a petition for habeas corpus alleging that his trial counsel, Mickey Sherman, had been ineffective. In continuing our little grim legal corner, in order to prevail on a claim of ineffective assistance of counsel, you have to prove both that your attorney's representation was insufficient and that there's a reasonable probability that representation by competent counsel would have led to a different outcome. So it can't just be that they made a mistake. It has to be that that mistake would have made a difference. In Michael's case, where there was no witness to the crime, no physical evidence, Every iota or shred of reasonable doubt mattered. Michael made several claims concerning Mickey Sherman's ineffective assistance, including failing to track down and present the testimony of an unbiased, non-family member alibi witness. At the grand jury, one of Michael's cousins, Georgianne Dowdle, was called to testify. The night of Martha's murder, she said she was home with her daughter and her beau, and heard her brother, Jimmy, and the Skakel cousins talking. She couldn't remember if she had actually seen any of them, but she'd given a statement to the police a few days after the murder, and she said that she had seen Michael at her house that night. Michael's attorney never sought to identify George Ann's beau, who turned out to be Dennis Osorio, a retired psychologist who confirmed that Michael was at the Tarion house the night of Martha's murder. At trial, the state attacked Michael's alibi by stating it was supported only by family members helping to cover up the crime, so the testimony of an unrelated individual would have been critical to Michael's defense. Mm -hmm. I could see how that would have been critical to his defense, yeah. Yeah. That seems like a failure of his attorney. Yes. Mm -hmm. Michael also alleged ineffective counsel in Mickey Sherman's failure to present a third-party culpability defense, pointing fingers at Tommy Skakel and for failing to call the three witnesses to contradict Gregory Coleman's testimony. Now, regarding the pointing fingers at Tommy Skakel, I wonder whether Rushton was paying for Michael's defense, Mm -hmm. um, and then you sort of have a conflict for the lawyer for Michael to point the finger at one of your other sons. I'm not sure, though. That's just my thought on the matter. A habeas trial was held, and in October 2013, the Superior Court issued a 170-page opinion holding that trial counsel had been ineffective in at least 10 ways, three of which were prejudicial under the Strickland versus Washington standard, which is the two-pronged standard I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. The judge found that Michael's defense attorney was ineffective for failing to point out that Tommy Skakel was the responsible party, especially given his direct involvement with Martha around the time of her death the evidence of Tommy's sexual interest in her, and Tommy's history of emotional instability. The court also agreed that counsel was ineffective in failing to properly investigate and call the alibi witness and the three men related to Coleman's testimony. So Michael would be entitled to a new trial. Wow. In November 2013, after more than 10 years in prison, Michael posted a $1.2 million bail. He was released on GPS monitoring, was ordered not to leave the state of Connecticut, and was to have no contact with the Moxley family. The state appealed the lower court's decision to the Connecticut Supreme Court. Three years later, in December 2016, the Supreme Court ruled in a 4-3 decision that Michael's trial counsel was not ineffective (gasps) and reinstated Michael's conviction. Oh my gosh. Oh, I got chills. I did too. 
Michael's attorneys filed a motion for reconsideration on Bonk to the Supreme Court, which basically is a motion that says, you should look again, you got it wrong. Bonk. <laughs> on Bonk. During the time that he had to file that motion, one of the Supreme Court judges retired. A motion on Bonk seeks review of the full court. Oh, and no. Michael asked that a seventh judge be added to the panel, which was granted by the court. If the seventh judge had not been added, the court would have been at a deadlock. Lucky for Michael, the new judge on the panel sided with the habeas court, and in May 2014, in a 4-3 vote, the Supreme Court affirmed the habeas court's oh decision, gosh. vacating his conviction in a 141-page opinion. Wow. Talk about lucky yeah. roller coaster. Oh my gosh, yeah. that guy retired, and then somebody who would rule in his favor, actually. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's... Not likely to repeat itself, like no. the timing of that. He really lucked out. The court agreed that Mickey Sherman's failure to investigate Dennis Osorio as an alibi witness fell below the standard for effective counsel. And that had the other witness been called, there's a reasonable probability that the result may have been different. Especially in light of how strongly Michael relied on his alibi and how hard the state worked to discredit it. Notably, during deliberations, the jury had asked to rehear the testimony of Julie Skakel, Andrea Shakespeare, and Helen's testimony as it related to who was in the driveway and who left in the car. Mm -hmm. So the jury was focused on the issue. And Andrea's testimony changed. Apparently, that had changed after she read Mark Furman's book, Pointing Blame at Michael, and the book also noted that there was a reward for information. Mm, motives are not pure here. No. So all the state's witnesses were impeachable. Court concluded that the state's case was not strong enough that they could say with confidence that Dennis's testimony would not have mattered to the jury, which undermined confidence in the conviction. The trial court's decision vacating the conviction and granting Michael a new trial was affirmed on reconsideration. The state petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court, but the court declined to review the case in early 2019. On October 30th, 2020, on the 45th anniversary of Martha's death, the state announced that it would not retry Michael Skakel. Wow. I had no idea it was all this recent, like the trials and all that. Wow. I remember some of these giant opinions coming out when I worked at the appellate court, but I didn't know the details of this case. So... Really, Martha Moxley has yet to get any justice. Wow. It's so, crazy. and we don't know anymore. And it's just like all our unsolved. So we're not going to know anymore. Nope. So I am fully speculating. Um, it is just my opinion based on the evidence that has been presented thus far that Tommy Skakel may have been involved in some mm -hmm. way just based on the fact that he was the last one to see her alive, that he changed his story, yeah. that he admitted that he had been sexually intimate with her that night and that he had been the one to pull mm -hmm. her pants down and that's how she was found. That's super suspicious. I just I just think he has some involvement. Maybe he didn't murder her, but there's some... And I think Ken is somehow involved yeah, a little like bit. Yeah, like a cover-up or mm -hmm. he saw it and he was like, oh, what have you done? Yeah. Um, what I was going to say, and you sort of just ran through it, so our head was in the same place, was like, let's go over the means, motive, and opportunity for Tommy. Yeah. So he would have had the means because he had access to the weapon and mm -hmm. he lived across the street or at least nearby for a motive. She could have rejected him or not wanted to take it further and... 
maybe she was interested in his brother or something. There are a bunch of different things that could have been the motive. And then he had the opportunity because as far as we know, he was the only one that was actually there around 10 o'clock with her. And he admitted Mm -hmm. to being with her until 10. Right. And the dogs. So originally he said he was inside by 930. And Helen said that her dog started barking at 945. But then with the Sutton report, Tommy admitted that he was with her until probably around 10 o'clock. And Ken did testify that when Tommy came in and was sitting and watching that movie with him, he said that he looked fine. Like, he didn't look like he was out of breath or anything. But, like, can we really trust Ken? No. no. Oh, no. The also, polygraph says no. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, Ken said he watched the movie 9 to 11 or something like that. Yeah. So it would he would have come in in the middle of the movie, mm-hmm. like he said, and that would have been closer to 10 o'clock. Right. 9, I probably would have said, like, oh, he came in right after I started, or 9.30. He, you know, what do you miss at 9.30, right. 30 minutes into a movie? Yeah. Hmm. So, hmm, that is the murder, the unsolved hmm. murder of Martha Moxley. Crazy. I really didn't know it was unsolved. I feel like without looking into it, right, and I didn't grow up in Connecticut, but growing up in Massachusetts, like I definitely heard the name Martha Moxley. I hadn't heard the Skakel name until Same. more recently. Um, and yeah, I, I definitely thought that it was solved. And it, I can't, like, imagine if you're her family, Martha's family, like, what did, what did her poor mother think of this? Did Dorothy believe it was Michael at any point in time? I don't know. We don't know. I think she would, you'd probably just believe what the state is telling you. Yeah. And, like, both of them look super, like, the whole Skakel clan looks sketchy. Suspicious. The odds of someone coming in and having done this, I think, are slim. So, I don't know who did it. Um, hmm. But I think the Skakel family was involved. Yes. And I think that their money did help. Mm-hmm. As I say, I smell a cover up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's why I'm saying, too, I don't know if, like, when Michael was saying, like, if you knew what I did, you you would disown me or whatever. Like, it could have been some other shitty thing that he did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> or it could have been... Again, he could feel really guilty because he was trying to tell Martha, like, no, my brother's got a thing for you. Like, why won't you be with Tommy? Because that's what her diary said, was that Michael was essentially trying to push her to Tommy. So he really could have felt terrible for pushing Martha towards her killer, basically, if if that's the bad thing that he did. Yeah. Or like you said, could have been a hit and run. Mm-hmm. He could have he done a bunch of things. Right. Yeah. He. I mean, based on her diary... She was definitely saying that Michael was telling her that she was leading Tommy on, mm-hmm. even though she's like, I'm not doing it. Like, we're just friends. Right. She was like, I need to stop going over there. But obviously didn't. Mm. If you're enjoying listening to Grimm, please rate and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts to make sure you don't miss any episodes. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, make our day by leaving us a written review. You can find our page on Facebook by searching Grimm colon a true crime podcast. Follow us on Instagram at Grim Crime Podcast for information on future episodes and case photos. If you want to send us a case suggestion or just say hi, you can email us at grimcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Listen, learn, and stay alive until next time because the future is grim. Grim.